Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another week from Wisconsin. Rebecca Lynch remains away while she uh, uh, works for the Elizabeth Warren campaign. We miss her, but she will be gone for a little bit. Um, we have our full, what is it's become our new panel, which includes Claire Zaki, our healthcare director here at Citizen Action. Claire, great to have you. Thank you. And Robert Craig, our executive director, is with us. Robert, good to see you this morning. Uh, good day, everyone. All right. So we have a number of topics that we want to get to today. Um, and uh, it starts, though, with uh, the spring elections here in Wisconsin. And we have been very busy <laughs> this January with endorsement processes, both uh, for the uh, statewide uh, Supreme Court race, but also, you know, there is a tremendous amount of local races that are critically important, and that uh, also includes here in Milwaukee, but in a number of other areas around the state. Uh, and our board this week uh, did a dual endorsement in the Supreme Court race, and I wanted to just get either of your thoughts on it, but um, both uh, uh, Jill Karofsky and Ed Falone have been endorsed by Citizen Action, and um, this race is really important because of the incumbent, right? And Robert, I don't know if you just want to quickly summarize uh, why the dual endorsement and what's at stake. Just top lines without dwelling. There's been a right-wing takeover of uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court. It goes well beyond and before Scott Walker, uh, Walker's top backer, Wisconsin Manufacturing Commerce, the top corporate business lobby in the state had a whole well-funded strategy to distort our Supreme Court races with big money and to make it a right-wing court that will side with corporations and the powerful, well-connected, and the rich against all of us. And the most obvious example is the lame duck decision recently, though many others. There's the decision to change the law to keep Scott Walker out of jail and the John Doe investigation and shut down the John Doe investigation, but now they're in the lame duck session, no one doubts that if a, Demo if a Democratic legislature stripped the powers of a Republican governor in a lame duck session, that this Supreme Court would have overturned it and found it unconstitutional. In other words, it's an ideological court. The incumbent is a Walker appointee who just votes with right-wing Republican positions, period. And so both, judge, uh, both judges, both um, uh, Fallon and, and, uh, and Porowski, in our minds, would both be independent jurists. They have different strengths and weaknesses that would be a fresh, a breath of fresh air in this state Supreme Court. And I want to remind our listeners that the primary is just around the corner. It's less than three weeks away. It'll be two weeks from next Tuesday. So it is uh, Tuesday, February 18th. Um, and again, there are three candidates. So please get out and vote in those elections. And again, these, this will be the primary election for other local elections. Uh, speaking of local elections, there was another endorsement uh, that our board made here uh, that's of interest here in the Milwaukee area. And again, that we know there's other uh, races around the state. We'll have some more endorsements from our regions that are coming out of our co-ops uh, later on this year, but the Milwaukee region has uh, endorsed in the Milwaukee County Executive Race and uh, endorsed uh, Chris Larson, uh, but also had uh, uh, some sp specific comments that uh, David Crowley was also very strong. Robert, real quick, and then Claire, I'd like to get yeah. your comments. State Senator Chris Larson, uh, but we also liked uh, Representative David Crowley and think he'd be a, a good county executive as well. People should know that we want a progressive candidate who will work with uh, groups like ours in partnership because co-governing is the only way to actually build a vibrant democracy, not just an open-door policy, which isn't the minimum, right? Uh, but then 
our big issue since Wisconsin in, in county and city politics in Milwaukee is the uh, climate uh, task force we've helped create on climate and uh, economic equity that is trying both to uh, meet the climate targets that we need to prevent a genocide and dramatically improve economic equity, especially race, racial economic equity in the region at the same time. So transform the economy for both purposes. And so Larson was very strong on that, but David Crawley uh, w was good on it as well. But we give the nod to Senator Larson. So uh, Claire, do you have any thoughts? Just that I I know that our if you are a listener of uh, Battleground Wisconsin, you are probably somebody who understands the importance of spring elections. Um, but we know that a lot of folks in the community don't and tend to vote in sort of the sexier fall elections, right, where where races are um, uh, partisan. Um, although we know that uh, you know they can be partisan without having a D or an R next to their name, right? Um, I mean, heck, look at the su state supreme court races. Uh -huh. um, Right. But, you know, but if you understand the importance of these spring elections, I highly encourage you to ensure that your friends and family members also understand the importance of these elections and get out to vote. So take so take your friends with you, take your family with you. Um, these these are really uh, important races, especially the state Supreme Court races. Um, issues like, you know, redistricting, for example, show the importance of having um, good people on benches who care about the community and care about law um, over political ideology. Um, so, so please, please spread the word on how important these races are. I also, uh, before we move to talking about the presidential race, which is uh, definitely getting exciting, um, I wanted to mention the special election in the 7th Congressional District up in northwestern Wisconsin. This essentially, well, let's be blunt, it's a gerrymandered district. Um, a long time ago, it used to be held by uh, Democrat Dave Obey. Uh, it does include the Wausau area, but then it just uh, meanders uh, and covers a wide swath of northwestern Wisconsin. Um, it has a special election since um, Sean Duffy has stepped down. Uh, last night, on uh, Wednesday evening, our north-central Wisconsin co-op had a forum uh, that was attended by both of the Democratic uh, candidates. And uh, I want to thank everyone who was able to get out. Uh, members asked all the questions, and it was by all accounts, an extremely uh, great, thoroughgoing discussion of, you know, quite frankly, the issues that people really care about and there's been virtually no movement on for, for quite a long time. And so good discussions of both healthcare, um, all, you know, all the way from how do we protect what we have uh, to Medicare for all um, and discussions of climate change and also legalization of marijuana was a huge issue, but a number of other things. But we wanna thank everyone who showed up for that. Um, and I know our members are going to be engaging and our leaders in a discussion of um, whether we should endorse in that race and we could have more information on that. Um, but with that, unless our panel has any further thoughts on that, um, I do want to talk about the presidential primary election. <laughs> it's been, we have, um, we have talked a lot about this. Um, we normally, right, like focus only on state level stuff but we have told people there are two things we're going to be committed to that's one discussing this race but also we have continued to talk about the ongoing impeachment hearings uh, but let's this week we have to talk about it because iowa caucuses are next week the big news over the last week has really been the surging of bernie sanders in particular in iowa also in wisconsin but also quite frankly nationally and uh so i I'm going to ask both of you to put your 
prognostication caps on. What was that word? Yeah, I don't know what the hell that is. Uh, who's going to win? Who's going to win after all the caucusing and the elbowing and the moving into the corners and separating out comes together? Claire, who is going to win the Iowa caucus? I know I have a sunny demeanor, but I'm also a little bit pessimistic. <laughs> oh, boy. So I feel like... Uh, <laughs> I feel like as much as I wanted to be either Elizabeth Warner, Warren or Bernie Sanders, I am going to go Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Whoa. Not, the not establishment. Who, not who I want. So, okay. So but we. I think we, I look, I think that as progressives, we think a lot about like our candidates and when they're doing better in the polls, we get excited and we say they're on upward trajectory. And it's easy to forget that there are people outside of our, you know, progressive ideology who you know, for whatever reason, still love people like Joe Biden. And I think he uh, continues to be strong in a lot had of places. that very conversation in Chicago this weekend with people about the Joe Biden supporter and people's actual interactions with them. But, um, okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll classify that as the Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Robert, your prediction. So in the Iowa caucuses on Monday, Bernie Sanders will win the caucus. <laughs> There we go. Biden will come in fourth. Fourth. Oh my, Whoa. Claire. And it's a challenge. Buttigieg and Warren will be in a virtual dead heat for second. Wow. There you go. Well, let's cross our fingers. Claire, so, well, either uh, way, it's not like I'm advocating. No, no, I know you're not advocating. <laughs> I, I know you're not advocating. It's a caucus. Biden. Ground games it's, matter. It matters. Yeah. 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 Biden's not even that well-funded. He's never raised money much in his career, which is interesting, because he's from the state of Delaware never had to. Well, one of the big things that, Robert, you mentioned the ground game, it matters in places like Iowa, and uh, actually showing up and participating in that caucus, you know, it's unique. It's not just walking in and, you know, hitting the ballot and walking out, so it, it's a different kind of voter. I think it's an interesting, your analysis is, right, Biden has this base core Democratic constituency that's always sort of been there and is very loyal to the party. Will they show up, or will it be also what is clear momentum for Sanders? And I think everybody knows somebody who's got plans to go to Iowa this weekend from Wisconsin <laughs> to go canvas, right? Like, Sanders has a ground game this weekend that, like, if you actually are a moving human being in Iowa, you will probably be on, uh, either knocked on or talked to by a Sanders supporter. Now, right? remember the, in the caucus structure, right, people who don't get the 15% threshold, their folks have to reorganize. And the reason I think Warren overperforms and comes in second or close to second is because she's the second choice of a lot of people. And so you have to figure that in how many people who whose first choice doesn't make the threshold go to Sanders, Biden, or Warren, or Klobuchar, et cetera. Well, and that's part of the calculation you don't have in a traditional time. we got to take a break right now here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, we will be right back. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Want to let our listeners know uh, in the last two segments of the show, we're going to be joined by Peter Rickman uh, from MASH, which is the new union that uh, successfully has uh, bargained its first contract with uh, the Bucks and the Fiserv. And we'll get more information about that in our last two segments. We're very excited uh, for those workers and to have Peter here to talk more about that. But before we do that, 
we got to talk a little more about what's been going on here in Wisconsin this week. Our governor was very busy in sort of, I don't know, you know, I would say setting, starting to lay out his political agenda uh, through some uh, key actions. One that I want us to talk about is he signed an executive order establishing a public sort of redistricting commission. Robert, uh, he's going to establish this commission. Obviously, this thing is not going to ultimately cut the maps, but let's talk about why this matters. I think it's one of the more stri- interesting strategic moves the governor has made so far in his, his, his tenure as governor in that we know the way the maps were cut last time uh, was liter- is, is, is a scandal. Behind closed doors, right? Secrecy Behind closed signing, doors, high-priced uh, uh, firms works. trying to running various computer scenarios to figure out which maps cannot withstand any kind of uh, democratic surge. And then also a map that produced a 63-36 Republican majority when 54% voted for Democrats. So the map is highly undemocratic. It's been empirically tested to be well gerrymandered. Yes. And so the issue, though, is if they're going to try to do this and they have the rigged Supreme Court we talked about in the last segment, they might actually be able to cut Governor Evers out altogether, get that rubber stamped, right? Of course, we know that Supreme Court would would find it unconstitutional if a Democrat legislature attempted to do it, right? That my point earlier. And so what do you do? The public is against uh, this kind of thing rapidly, but the public doesn't vote on this issue. They end up voting on kitchen table economic issues, health care, et cetera, so they can get away with it. And the Republican Party and the right is, is perfectly happy to do unpopular things as long as they're not voted out of office on it. And so this is a great way to elevate the issue and to visualize the issue with real people going and cutting the maps and use the authority of the governor to create such a process. And his, this is a kind of bully pulpit, but it's a more Evers kind of bully pulpit. It's not him giving a big speech, right? It's his bringing all sorts of people together to talk because he <laughs> likes to listen to citizens talking, but he's not some big orator who just fills all the space. If you've been to a public meeting with him, uh, he just walks around at tables and listens and doesn't give much of a speech at all, which is refre- a refreshing contrast to the ex- poll-tested and blow-dried Scott Walker, which people finally had got fatigued over. So I think this is a brilliant move, and it raises the cost. But of course, Robin Voss, who is an illeg- illegitimate dictator who has this supermajority, killed Badger Care expansion with this supermajority, is just saying, it's all the legislators' business. We get to organize ourselves, and we're going to ignore you, because he knows... Traditionally, there's no, he doesn't even need to do uh, effective public messaging. He's just going to do it. I agree. Uh, this is a, a really smart political move and a really uh, great way to get the community involved in an issue that people in general know about and in general care about, but is so far removed from our uh, daily lives as non-elected people um, that it's easy it's easy to not really understand how it gets done um, and and to feel like it's not something that we have any control over. So it's it's not worth expending a ton of um, a ton of energy on. 
um, and and yet is an issue that is connected to literally everything um, and every other issue that we care about. Um, like if you care about the state taking action on uh, climate change and environmental justice, you need to care about redistricting. If you care about education funding, you need to care about redistricting. If you care about healthcare, you need to care about redistricting. And so, uh, and it's it's those um, those connections are hidden. Um, and so, so if you bring people into the redistricting process um, in the way that this this will, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll help elevate those connections and make people um, care in a more substantial way about this issue. Yeah, we talked about how this issue was basically completely <laughs> just in the wilderness years ago, and nobody, it was so esoteric, nobody paid attention to it. And there's been a lot of amazing work done by activists around the state, many of them in this organization, other organizations, right? Um, and just individuals, right? Um, and we talked about Hans on the previous, you know, just heroic work around this has really elevated. But I think this is an effort to take it to the next level. What will be powerful is this thing's going to go, this commission's going to go produce maps, and these maps will be better. And they are going to look a lot more fair. And when this thing goes and it gets kicked in a, the inevitable process of where it's going to go, you're going to have these trash maps done the way they do them versus these, and it will provide a much clearer contrast. Plus, uh, Claire, you mentioned this. You know, one of our frustrations that we've talked about, Evers, and we have a disagreement is like, we want to keep talking about healthcare. We want to keep talking about some of these issues that, you know, have this huge separation. This is how he's talking about those. Issues. This is how he's going to talk about Medicaid for now. And he's going to say, we can't do this. We can't do Medicaid. We can't do uh, common sense gun reform. We can't do legalization uh, because of gerrymandering. And that's been. It's been in his messaging now for about two or three months anyways, but this is this is the vehicle to probably keep talking about those issues, Robert. And it's the way to bring that to public attention, and you have to have a governor repeating it, right, over and over again. Uh, but I was going to say that this, if he can elevate this in public opinion, right, you, I'm sure Robin Voss will try to ignore him. And remember, the scenario was this. It's always been passed on new maps by legislation a governor can veto. They're talking about doing it by resolution that avoids him, and then the state Supreme Court would decide whether that was reasonable. And, of course, they've been rubber stamping every right-wing position. But here's the thing. Courts claim they just look at the law. They listen to public opinion as well. And don't for a second believe Justice Roberts upheld the Affordable Care Act, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, uh, because he had legal qualms. It's because he knew it would damage the credibility of the court because it would be so unpopular. And so if we can build it to that level, then you have a, a better chance for the state Supreme Court to find a way not to just rubber stamp Robin Voss's desire to rig the maps for another 10 years. So there you go. That is the state of kind of Wisconsin play. we got to have a super... Super public majorities, just to hold it up. But it is the reality. Um, one other thing um, that I definitely want to make sure we mention um, is Evers this week also de uh, delayed the implementation of the Medicaid work requirements. We have talked about those before. And I want to remind everybody, these aren't Evers work requirements. These are the requirements that happened under the Walker administration. Claire, Robert, your And we're reinforced in the lame duck. Yeah. But uh, I will just say, we've talked about it before. It's it all framed as helping people, right? Actually, it's simply a barrier to health care. It doesn't actually help them work in any constructive way. It just hopes to chase people off the rolls, and it works that way very effectively. And it's based on the false 
right-wing premise, but too many Democratic moderates hold this too, that when people don't have access to health care, it's something, it's some personal failing rather than the fact that we have a health care system that's discriminatory, racist, and too expensive, and that unless you have the kind of job that provides you good coverage, you are in sad shape, especially if you're a, if you're a working person. And, it's, and so to blame this group of individuals and to say we're going to get them jobs with crappy training program you can't get to that doesn't lead to jobs and isn't really tracked or even evaluated for effectiveness, then obviously it's just a scam. It costs a bunch of money, but it's a scam to chase people out of health care, which is a moral abomination. Boom. Mic drop. Oh. I got nothing more to add. That was perfect. Well, Claire, I got a question for you sure. on a topic that's related to this before we go to break. Um, the Wisconsin Examiner had an excellent story that came out today around um, uh, leave, paid family leave, right, which we know is a huge issue, uh, very connected in m- many ways to, you know, one's health and then ability to have, you know, real economic freedom and opportunity. Um, there are some stuff happening in the capital at, at the federal level. Just your thoughts on the political state of play, both federally and state on this yeah, this is uh, an important issue that uh, people care about across the political and across socioeconomic spectrums, um, the issue of, of care um, and of, fa- of paid family leave, um, paid sick time, paid parental leave. Um, and, and yet it's stalled at both the state and federal level um, and the state level. Um, there was some legislation introduced um, in 2019 around uh, paid family leave, I believe, and and similar legislation has been introduced year after year um, without being passed. Um, and I think it's another um, example of um, the st- uh, leaders in the state, especially Republican leaders in the state, not willing to prioritize. Um, not willing to prioritize the needs of, of actually uh, family members um, and um, of women in particular. Um, and, and yet there's also some stalling at the federal level about this. Um, and there's some legislation that's been hanging out there at the federal level in Congress as well um, that hasn't had any action on it. Um, and actually, um, I wanted to say Congressman Ron Kind um, actually recently had a, had a great uh, comment talking about paid leave for all, a bill that's out in Congress. Um, and, and I want to lift it up because it was great. He said, I can't be the only one in the room making the simple observation that it's all women who are on the panelist here testifying for the need for this policy and that it was three House female members who came in and testified in the first panel. And I think... Uh, the point obviously needs to be made that this is important for the male workforce as well, for our child rearing and family caregiving responsibility and striking the right balance between work and family. And so I want to thank Ron Kind for, for making um, that that case on this important issue. Well, look, we're going to continue to talk about not only this, but just caregiving issues in general from basically from the time you're born <laughs> until the time you die. We have we have a whole lot of work to be doing about this issue, uh, and we're going to continue to do that and talk more. But we got to take a break. When we get back, we will be joined by Peter Rickman from MASH to talk about the huge organizing victory here in Milwaukee. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Before we're joined by Peter Rickman, Robert, I wanted to give you an opportunity to make sure we at least uh, bring to people's attention an important uh, bill around uh, retirement for public employees, particularly educators. Uh, Well, uh, on your list of bad things that might happen before the legislative session uh, ends, that is 
uh, Senator Dewey Strobel, Ooh. no stranger to terrible yeah, bills. We talked about him. Good things uh, coming from there. Sockville and Representative Mary Felzowski, I believe it's pronounced, but maybe someone else knows from Irma. Uh, you can correct me, send, send emails. Uh, they have a bill to raise the retirement age for all public employees except those in protective service, i.e. police oh. and fire, uh, to by, by four years on the grounds that this will alleviate the teacher shortage. So the, rather than respect teachers, stop attacking them, take away their union, pay them like other professionals, we think the way to do this is to make them work longer. So please call and, and, and speak out against this bill. Yeah, I want to uh, say I have two th- quick things because I know we've got to move on um, to say about this. And one is their argument here is that um, they need to allow people who are already retired to, to go back to work for a few years while also collecting their pension, thereby double dipping, which is currently um, not allowed in state statute, um, but would cost the state retirement system more money. Um, and so in order to make up for that, that's why they're arguing they need to um, advance the retirement age so so that like people are paying in longer and then also able to double dip on the back end, right? So it's so so that's that's the stated justification for this retirement age. Of course, we know it's also an attack on workers. The other thing I want to say is I want to tie this to also the flawed logic that they had for reducing the training hours for CNAs, yeah. um, which you know we just defeated because the the argument is the same. If you want to solve the teacher shortage, if you want to solve the caregiver shortage, the CNA shortage, the answer is not to devalue the work and to make people work longer. The answer is to like put more respect into the work by giving them better benefits and better wages and better professional training and better professional support. What an amazing segue to one other thing that you might want to give them as a See union. See what I did right there? Yeah. Uh, funny thing. Funny thing. So w- with that, we are going to introduce our guest uh, who we are going to talk to for the rest of the show. And that is Peter Rickman. He is the president of MASH. And MASH is the Milwaukee Area Service and Hospitality Workers. And it's a labor union. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me here. So for people who just aren't paying attention, there was huge news yesterday. We record Thursday. So Wednesday, uh, news broke that the union and all the workers, and this union is at Fiserv, the new huge arena and a lot of surrounding facilities, uh, have an agreement for their first contract. Tell us more about this very exciting news, Peter, and thanks so much for being here. Yeah, we uh, announced a tentative uh, agreement or set of tentative agreements for first union contracts for about a 1,000 workers who operate the Pfizer Forum. It's the cooks and cashiers, the bartenders and waiters, it's the security guards and customer service workers, the ticket takers and ushers. <clears throat> they have secured an industry-leading standard-setting uh, first contract. I, I should say, and uh, for people who don't necessarily know how unions work, we're, we're democratic organizations. We're worker-driven, member-led organizations. This is a tentative agreement, which means until workers have completed voting on whether to accept it or not, it's just that. It's a tentative agreement. Um, our bargaining committees, rank and file members elected by their coworkers, have negotiated this contract at the table with their employers as equals. They've brought this contract back to their coworkers and their fellow union members, recommending unanimously uh, a yes vote. And uh, the vote is going on right now. Uh, we think folks are probably going to vote yes for it because it is, as I noted, an industry-leading standard-setting contract that puts workers at a $15 an hour minimum wage by the time of the DNC in just a few months. So when will... When will the vote be uh, finalized, and we'll know for sure, Peter? The workers started voting on Monday. 
Um, and the vote's going to conclude on Friday. So these are arena workers, and you know they work uh, sort of odd schedules. Some folks start at 8.30 in the morning, and uh, the last shift on Friday is probably going to end somewhere around 11 p.m. Uh, so we'll tally up the vote there at the arena around midnight on Friday night. And you know, if you want to come and join us, Matt, you're welcome to. Midnight on Friday, beautiful. No, I think this is this. First of all, congratulations to all the workers. This is incredibly yeah. historic. And um, I'm going to kick it to our panel after this last question here. But I want your comments on right, like the historic nature of this in terms of the service sector. Right, this is an incredibly huge <laughs> sector. It is largely non-union. It is continuing to grow. I mean, most projections generally almost like half of the growing jobs are generally in this are in this sector. Um, and what does what could this mean towards starting to radically change the way this sector is organized and the way workers are treated and have uh, a right to a union? Uh, this is the largest private sector union organizing uh, victory, um, as far as I can tell, in the last couple decades here in Wisconsin. Um, and this is the kind of thing I, I you know, study on the side for funsies after midnight ratification votes. Um, <laughs> Good time, Peter. Yeah, yeah, right. We all need to have a hobby. Yeah. Peter is <laughs> Me single. Me and my three cats <laughs> sitting on the couch. Peter and his cats. Um, so I, the, the, this contract raises wages two-thirds from where folks were at at the non-union Bradley Center. Um, you know, when, when workers see that unions are able to actually deliver uh, large increases in, in, in wages and income in their pockets, in addition to ensuring the dignity, rights, and respect that only come when folks have a union contract, I think folks' ears perk up a little bit. In fact, on Tuesday night, this was breaking um, because the service industry is, you know, it's, it's interconnected. People work in multiple places. Um, there's a group of, of folks who work in the service sector at some other downtown workplaces who uh, were meeting with us as a, to start an organizing committee. That's, you know, where we need to take this. This is a standard-setting industry-leading contract that's an example. There's a bunch of things that I could say about what you noted, Matt, with the service industry and you know the transformation of our local economy, how uh, we've moved from this you know, strong, uh, increasing access middle-class economy in Milwaukee when we had a bevy of living wage union jobs up on the north side in, in manufacturing. And, and when those jobs have you know, left and been replaced by low-wage service sector jobs, we've seen the rise in poverty. Uh, income inequality and magnified Milwaukee's, um, you know, racial and economic uh, crises. <clears throat> but I think that's probably something that some of the other panelists might want to say something about, because otherwise I'll just yak on for two, three, maybe four segments. So, Peter, it seems to me that we're often kind of trapped. We're prisoners of conventional wisdom and the, the age we live in. That there's an notion that these jobs shouldn't be good value supporting jobs because, in our experience, they haven't been right. But if you think back, manufacturing jobs didn't used to be good jobs. In fact, they started out as basically prisons for young women where they were worked 80 hours a week to death in textile mills. That's like the, the origin of manufacturing in the United States once the cotton gin was invented, which also helped firmly establish uh, slavery So uh, for, for another several decades. Robert uh, took my let's look back to the 1940s and just doubled it. We'll, we'll go yeah. to the 1800s. <laughs> Love it. This but, is why I come here. <laughs> It, I mean, unions are kind of democracy. Working people got together and built power to balance the power of the mill owners, right? And you ha and the problem is, 
Like when you when you organized the first steel mill, you didn't suddenly make them great jobs because there was only one, and they still had to compete with all the non-union ones. You could and. I know SEIU, uh, the National Union, has some interesting notions of what percentage of the workforce you need to actually represent in order to start to drive <coughs> the numbers you can make them family-supporting jobs. You could talk a little bit about how you need more density, but you need to start somewhere in order to eventually transform it, a sector so that future generations just assume that service sector jobs are good jobs you can raise a family on and live on. Yeah, I, our, our comrades from SEIU uh, put forward a, a pretty aggressive program for how to make our, our federal labor laws work for workers again in the 21st century economy. We have a labor law that was written you know, 80 years ago for an industrial economy, and it did serve its purpose. It, it enabled folks to organize unions and win higher wages, um, you know, win, win benefits, build the world's first middle class, imperfect as it was, and address things in the workplace. Um, like racial inequality. Um, but, you know, that labor law no longer works for the 21st century service sector economy. Uh, actually, SEIU announced this Unions for All program here in Milwaukee, launching it um, with us reflecting on what we're, you know, uh, building in, in MASH. I, I think, you know, with apologies to our, our friends um, and the folks I've studied from the, the UAW and the steelworkers and the machinists who built that industrial unionism of the 30s and 40s that ultimately transformed the political economy of the United States, our inspiration is more in the needle trades industries of the 19-teens as far as building a union because you can't just organize in one workplace and expect that you are going to set new standards and you know, transform local economies. You need to organize across a whole sector. So we viewed the organizing at the arena and the uh, and the arena district as sort of the the center uh, for transforming the whole local service sector economy. And we're going to need some policy interventions to help make that happen. I think that's so interesting um, because we've seen um, sort of harping back to uh, or harkening back to a point that you made much earlier in your comments um, in that the, you know, Wisconsin has has not seen a lot of success in growing unions um, in the last several years and decades, I would say. Um, and, and it's just a changing, um, it's a changing economy and changing landscapes and people who are anti-unions have, have figured out pretty successful ways to to break some unions um, and so I love that you are thinking uh, innovative innovatively about what is the future of unions and and how can we uh, make sure that workers continue to have protections that we can fight against um, you know folks who would who would like to keep people people down um, and, pr and protect sort of this this uh, white supremacy economy and, and protect um, sort of the concentration of wealth. I'm yeah. going to hold your question. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, Claire, you get first crack at question for Peter. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are talking with Peter Rickman, the president of MASH, which is the new union that represents the workers at the new Bucks Arena, the Fiserv Arena, and not just the arena, but some of the uh, service industries that have surrounded, uh, that have sprung up around the arena in the Deer District. Claire, you were about to ask a question before we had to go to break. 
Well, I feel like now that I are, am done is sort of inflating your ego about how innovative <laughs> you are and like leading the, the resurgence of private sector unions uh, in this battleground state of ours. Um, so now, now I feel like I need to, to knock you down a notch and say, you know, we have a lot of friends in common. And I have been hearing that um, a lot of folks um, might be interested in seeing you change your shaggy haired ways. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that there might even have been a promise of, of a haircut. With a settled contract? The, once, no, once maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, signed. well, no, there was no tentative agreement on that. There's no I, tentative agreement. There's, no, there's, there's nothing bargained back and forth. No quid pro quo. <laughs> is, is, this like, is this like asking Samson to cut his hair? Is that it? <laughs> well, so I guess, the, I guess the real question is, uh, is, is what's next? So, so you're going to sign... Um, you're going to sign this uh, contract. Um, you think that it'll very likely happen at the end of this week. Uh, yeah. What's next for you and when for MASH? When, when's the revolution come <laughs> in this process? Yeah, the, the revolution's <laughs> right around the corner after that. First the Pfizer forum, then the world. Um, I, I think that um, what workers in the, in the arena and our members and folks who want to organize with us are looking for is a, a, a bold and aggressive plan to organize across the service sector. You all were talking about the caucuses before. Who we elect as president is going to be a big deal. We've got an organizer-in-chief running my, my candidate that I've supported for years, Bernie Sanders, with a real plan to help organize uh, and, and you know secure sectoral bargaining, a way for workers to bargain with all employers in an industry at once. Uh, we're working to build something like that here in Milwaukee. I want to give you an example here, a fellow by the name of Troy. Uh, Troy is a cook in the arena. Um, he's also a cook at another restaurant, does the exact same job in both places. Um, now, because Troy has been on the bargaining committee, he not only was part of securing big raises for workers. You know, folks are, like I said, are, are, are winning raises that bring them up to two thirds above where they were in the non-union Bradley Center. That's the union difference. Troy was also able to organize some of his coworkers to demonstrate. <clears throat> Actually, their their cook jobs were systematically underpaid, so they're getting an even bigger raise than what they were going to. That's the power of a union contract. People like Troy, real live working folks, having a say in what's going on in their life, equal to that of the bosses. But Troy's going to go to a second job, and A, he's not going to be paid anything near a living wage. B, he's not going to have any protections for access to work or rights on the job. His work is not going to be dignified or respected the same way it is at the arena. There's no reason that Troy should not have the exact same thing in both places. And let me take this further. In a world where you know, the United States continues this you know, outrageous moral abomination of denying health care by right to people, and we leave it up to employers to cover, Troy working two part-time jobs is not going to get health care from either employer. And it's bonkers that those employers don't take responsibility for their contribution to pay for Troy to have health care. Troy, single father, two daughters. Um, you know, as a father of a daughter myself, I can't imagine her not having access to health care. Right now, Troy's busting his chops to make a decent living to support himself and his family. And his employers are skating on their responsibilities because they don't have to. So what we're going to do is fight to organize across the sector so that no matter where the Troys of the world work, he's going to have the same economic standards, wages. He's going to have rights, dignity, and respect on the job. And his employers are going to contribute to a fund to pay for his health insurance uh, so he and his kids have access to health care. That's what's next for us, fight to win that. Whether it takes a year, 10 years, 
doesn't matter. This is the fight of our time to address economic and racial inequality and injustice in Milwaukee and beyond. Yeah, we're there with you, man. I mean, I, I'm so glad that you you pointed out that healthcare is a basic human right, um, and the fact that we live in a system where employers largely get to term, determine whether or not um, somebody gets to receive healthcare is is sort of morally abhorrent. So, can you talk a little more about the context this takes place in in the United States? With unions, right? Because unions have uh, are are representing fewer and fewer people. But it's not because any kind of change in public opinion. Most people would like to be in unions. They just don't actually have the right. Or it's it's such an arduous thing. It's like going to war and risking your job. And you need and you need support against some big powerful employer, right? And so the system briefly in the 30s and 40s and 50s actually was balanced. And since that, it's been progressively rigged. So now it's it now it's it, uh, the uh, the decks are stacked against working people, and they and frankly since the 70s it's become completely okay by employers by their decline in ethics just it's okay to take all the money right look at CEO pay to brutally suppress organizing drives and violate the law as general practice right so can you talk more about how leverage fits into this and how to the extent you can reveal how you can do things like the public investment in the Bucks arena to get leverage for workers and then build something out of it, that, that employers will not do this out of the goodness of their hearts, that they're, they're capitalists, right? And they so, have, they never will. Right, and so you need, you need power, right? The workers actually have to have power in order to get anything. So you talk about that process and how, how you develop leverage and power moving forward. Yeah, it's funny. I had my daughter at one of our union meetings early on, and I asked her, you know, what'd, what'd you learn? What'd you, what'd you think? She said, Daddy, we talk a lot about power and contracts. And I thought that was a really <laughs> good summation. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, workers need to have something that's a guarantee, that's written out, that's enforceable, that, that you know, puts their rights on paper. Um, they can't have promises from bosses because those don't mean a damn thing when it comes down to it. And workers need to have power to secure those contracts. That's what the union is all about. A union is simply a way for workers to come together and build the strength in numbers and, and balance out the power with bosses. And, you know, I think the one of the big problems with contemporary labor law is that power has only been balanced on a workplace basis. And we know that in the 21st century economy, labor market power is exercised on an industry or sectoral level. Um, so our, our labor law not only has it become more broken in the way that it fails to protect workers in those organizing drives that are not like going to war. They are war. It is it is one expression of the class war here in America. You know, it it doesn't just need to be improved to strengthen folks' protections in those conventional workplace-based or enterprise uh, union organizing efforts. Our labor law needs to be radically transformed to match what this 21st century economy looks like, where standards are set on a labor market basis. Um, so, you know, getting a little bit abstract on you there. And I think, <clears throat> you know, looking, by the way, folks should know that this week, um, Harvard Law, uh, led by a fantastic woman named Sharon Block, former member of the NLRB, just released uh, a paper on how to refashion labor law for the 21st century. And I was really honored to, to be invited to participate in some of that um, and talk about the experience with workers in MASH and what we're doing on a sectoral basis here in Milwaukee. So it's a great blueprint. No matter who we elect as our next president, they should take that up seriously. I hope it's Bernie Sanders. I think his recommendations match that. Um, can can I? Uh, how, how much time do I have to you answer have the rest of these questions? Oh, no, I only to answer this whole question. I only question. have three minutes to answer this question. Jesus, man. Uh, uh, 
so so the the one other thing that I'll, I'll say in answering Robert's question is that you know no matter where workers are at, we need to build leverage in whatever way that we can to fight an asymmetrical fight to balance power with bosses. You know whether it's a publicly funded arena where we can leverage that policy making process or creating new structures like city ordinances that bring uh, employers to the table along with workers across whole sectors, state level policies or federal. There's probably a million different ways we can do it. There's no silver bullet, but what we have to do as union organizers, as activists, as progressives, as leftists, uh, we need to be serious about taking power and exercising it for workers to win again. And there's lots of leverage. The city has zoning. The city has to approve all sorts of things when anything new is built. So that's leverage being left on the table right now, right? Yeah, it, it has been. Alderman Bob Bauman um, uh, here in Milwaukee has worked um, to uh, fashion a, a project to ensure that every development that takes place in downtown Milwaukee um, you know, uh, looks at doing something like what has been done around the Bucks Arena District. I should add that that, uh, that resolution was adopted unanimously by the Common Council and signed by Mayor Barrett. Um, it doesn't have much force and effect on, on paper. It only has force and effect based upon whether people organize and mobilize around that and hold bosses accountable that when they're going to go to City Hall that they come in and say, we'll do a Bucks agreement here too. So... We're going to have to start to wrap this up, but there's a couple there's a couple of things I wanted to comment on. One is um, what's great about this, the Bucks owners sort of have come in from out of town, and I believe at some level, and they're still bosses, have set a different kind of standard as to like maybe how we could interact in terms of this contract. Just everything about this has been sort of like a different level in changing those expectations that things can't be different. And I think that that's like really important that I think that this moment does. It shows that actually, no, we could potentially do things differently. Uh, the Bucks have led the way with these workers, right? The workers are leading in terms of getting people to see things very differently about what, what, what could be. And I, I, I think that that's absolutely fundamentally important if we're gonna have this happen. And Peter, what should people do if they're sitting around, well, sitting around <coughs> listening to this and they're like, I would like to organize with MASH. How do they get in touch with you? Um, well, I just want to say the, the fundamental aspect of what you noted there, Matt, is that workers can raise expectations again, believe that workers can win again. You know, Donovan, a bartender, was in my office last night hearing about the contract, and he sort of broke down and said, I never thought we could win something like this, Ugh. and I'll never fail to believe it when you tell us that we can win when we organize. He signed his union card right then and there, joined the union as a member. Um, what folks can do is, if you're interested in, in helping build a union in your workplace or joining the fight with service sector workers, send us an email at info at mashworkers.org. That's info at M-A-S-H. W-O-R-K-E-R-S dot org. And we'll get you in touch with an organizer the same day. It might even be me if you're lucky. <laughs> Peter, says, thank you so much for joining us and, of course, for uh, the vision that uh, the workers at MASH and y'all have had to, to help change our community. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. And with that, we got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. We want to thank Peter. We also want to thank Brian Woldridge, our producer, producer who makes the show happen every week. We'll see you next week here at the Battleground Wisconsin.